<clears throat> As Mr. Waylau comes forward, please open your Bibles to Psalm 34. Thank you, brother. All right, we will be reading from Psalm 34. Let us give our ears and our hearts to the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word of God. Psalm 34, a psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked on, unto him, and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles." The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life, and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, and do good. Seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as, uh, as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Thus ends the reading in, of God's most holy word. So as we open up this passage, we have a title that gives us some historical understanding for when this psalm was penned. Um, the occasion is found in 1 Samuel 21, uh, verses 10 through 15. And if you'll recall, in 1 Samuel 21, David is fleeing from Saul. He has just met with Ahimelech, received the sword of Goliath and provisions for his journey and makes his way down into Philistia to seek refuge in the Philistines. Now that might seem counterintuitive. You're leaving the promised land. You're going down to a nation full of enemies. And here with the sword of Goliath 
And with a psalm ready in the ears of the Philistines, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, and here he is in front of Achish, the king. Now, we have here Ahimelech given for the name. We understand that that's the dynastic name. Uh, it means my father is the king, which was held by many of the royalty in uh, Philistia. We'll hear of Abimelech many times throughout scripture, but Achish is his name. Ahimelech, or Abimelech is his title. Now, during this occasion, when he goes down into uh, Philistia and meets with Achish, we know that David changes his uh, demeanor. He changes his countenance before, um, before Achish in such a way that he, uh, it says that he feigned himself mad, made marks on the door of the gate, and allowed uh, some uh, spittle to fall upon his beard. Okay, now, as for the morality of this procedure, there are, uh, there's much dispute about it. Some have tried to um, relieve David of any sort of wrongdoing here by saying it, it was a feigning strategy like we use in war. I'm going to misdirect my enemy going, you know, pretending to go one way only to go another. Other commentators argue uh, that it, is, it was not justified, but instead was a violation of the ninth commandment. And that not only that, it brought reproach upon the Lord and upon his future king, uh, making the future king of Israel contemptible in the eyes of the Philistines. And later history, it would seem, might bear that out a little bit. But what we have to understand here is that this isn't a penitential psalm, as, as we heard uh, Mr. Suarez discuss in the first psalm. It's a psalm of rejoicing. So how is it, then, that we reconcile these disparate things, praising the Lord for his deliverance, and yet on the other side, having David uh, in some sort of sin. Well, uh, regardless of your position on whether David's actions were sinful or not, we must recognize that the Lord did, in fact, deliver David out of the hand of the Philistines. Um, and it is with that deliverance in mind that this psalm is penned. So although we as the people of God often sin and error, error in our use of means, uh, praise be the Lord that he does not meet with us according to our deserts, according to what we deserve. The Lord is able in complete righteousness to deliver his people according to the riches of his grace and mercy in Christ and to the glory of his name, and even if the means to accomplishing that deliverance are sinful. At the same time, that does not relieve or excuse David of his sin in one way or another. The Lord is able righteously to do that, but we must follow what the Lord commands. And so both can, can, uh, can be true. Um, as for the structure of the psalm, this is an alphabetical psalm. Um, each verse beginning with, or beginning with the letters successfully of the Hebrew alphabet. However, this psalm does have some anomalies in it. Uh, we see that the sixth letter is omitted altogether, and the 17th letter is used for both verses 16 and 22. Now, some unbelieving commentators have made occasion by this to cast doubt upon whether or not we have the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God here. But that is an unbelieving perspective. As believers, 
uh, in the Lord. We must instead approach such anomalies as this, trusting that the Lord has not only inspired the original autograph of this text, but has preserved it full and entire for us to this day. Such that we have today, what we have today, what we have here, is the unadulterated word of God in its fullness. So that by way of introduction, let's dive into the first section. The first section I have of this psalm is, is verses 1 through 10. And here we see David exercises himself in praise and thankfulness to the Lord for delivering him out of the hand of the Philistines. And he does so, as we have heard recently in some sermon series, in, in the sermon series, by exercising and entertaining high and praiseworthy thoughts of God. And not only that, but he calls upon all those who are likewise humbled to remember that the Lord is gracious in his care over all those that fear him. And so in verses 1 through 3, David stirs himself and all those who would join with him in a continual blessing and praising of the Lord. And here we recognize that God is infinitely majestic and excellent. There is nothing that our praises add to the glory which he has inherent within himself. But it is one of the greatest privileges of us as saints to be able to manifest his glory in our praises. Such is the case that we will see, say that the Lord is the one who inhabits the praises of his people. Our duty ought to be continually taken up with joy and delight. As God's people, we also ought to be continually watchful for opportunities to praise the Lord for his grace and kindness toward us, his people. This is part of our responsibility as we uh, are, have just this morning contemplated the communion of saints. This is one of our responsibilities that we have to one another. To share the things that the Lord has done for us in his providential and his, in his redemptive mercies toward us. And to make that the subject of rejoicing together. We are all united together in Christ and are members of the same body. Having this bond of love and the unity of the Spirit, we are, as Paul says, to rejoice with them that do rejoice and to weep with them who weep. In Romans twelve fifteen, Deliverance of any one of us is a matter of great joy for all of us. And it ought to stir us up to more fervency and more importunity and more... Uh, and more earnestness in our prayers, knowing that if the Lord delivered not only us, but the saints gone by, we come from a long history of deliverances of God's people, don't we? And so whether we reckon and, and think about this deliverance that was brought upon David or the deliverance that are brought about in countless saints, we have a communion with them and we want to use that to stir ourselves up to not only praise the Lord for deliverances gone by, but a hopeful expectation that the Lord will continue those deliverances into the future. This is what we mean when we say the humbled shall hear thereof and be glad. Speak to one another. Take occasion one with another to tell one another of the marvelous works of the Lord. These are good and necessary things for us. They are means that the Lord has given for us to stay in the path of righteousness and to continually have his praises upon our lips. In verses 4 through 10, uh, we are directed by David to consider the various evidences of God's favor toward those who fear him. 
The first one in uh, verses 4 through 6 is that the Lord is uh, ready to hear and to answer prayers. And we think about David and Philistia just for a moment. Who does he have to turn to? If he looks to the right hand, if he looks to the left hand, all he sees are enemies. But when he looks up, he sees the greatest friend he could ever ask for. A Lord, ready, almighty, to hear his prayers and to answer them. And so it is a great comfort to believers to know that the Lord is ready to hear the cries of his saints. And for David, it would have been a great comfort to see himself surrounded by enemies and know that he has still a way of escape, a Lord to turn to. The Lord delivers us from all our fears. In verse 4, not only does the Lord deliver us from temporal distresses, but from all our fears. Brethren, fear should never hinder us in our prayers. Whatever we might fear, whether it be affliction, persecution, death, or judgment, the Lord is able and willing to overcome all these by his grace for all who would come unto him. The next thing is the Lord protects and keeps his people. Just as the angel of the Lord in the wilderness encamped about uh, about his people as he led them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, how he kept the Egyptians from him by a wall of fire about Jerusalem. David is contemplating this in his situation, being surrounded by the enemies of Philistia. And yet he contemplates that the angel of the Lord, our great Lord Jesus Christ, is there with us, protecting us, keeping us. And so no matter how many our foes may be and the greatness of our weakness, The Lord encamps about his people to deliver them out of their distress. And then finally in this section, the Lord is good and the fountain of all good and ready to distribute. Here David encourages all those who would hear to taste and see that the Lord is good. We have heard in in sermons here just recently uh, that the word taste here is to prove by experience, but not just to stop at that first proofing. But instead, once you have tasted, to drink deeply of the goodness of God, uh, to make a continual, uh, to take a continual draft from this inexhaustible font. There is no want of any good thing to those who fear the Lord, verses 9 and 10. The goodness of the Lord is not limited in one respect or another, but satisfies all that we want and need. It supplies for what we need temporally. It supplies what we need eternally. It supplies for our infirmities and the temptations and struggles that we face each and every day. <laughs> and notice the comparison that's brought up. He says, talks about the, the young lion having want, right? We talk about the mightiest, the most ferocious of beasts suffering want. They, by their nature, would, would seem that they, they would not want anything. They could take down even the mightiest beast in, in their domain. And yet, they suffer hunger. But for God's people, there is no want. He supplies richly according to his mercy for all their needs. They do not lack any good thing. 
So in section 2 of the psalm, uh, verses 11 through 22, having demonstrated the great blessing that are upon them that fear the Lord, David then draws us to consider what it means to fear the Lord. He says, Come, O ye children, hearken unto me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In this psalm, David answers the question, uh, several questions with regard to the fear of the Lord um, in a very instructive way. First he, asks, uh, first, he answers the question, what is it to fear the Lord? Second, what are the fruits of that fear? And third, what are the motivations or benefits of that godly fear? The first question, what is it to fear the Lord, is answered in verses 15 and seven, uh, through 17. And I'll kind of sum it up for you. To fear the Lord is to w- humbly walk before the Lord in reverence and admiration, setting him always before us and conducting ourselves in recognition of his holiness. God's eyes and by implication his face are turned toward the righteous for their comfort, support, and protection. His providence is over them for good, to supply for their wants, chastise them for their sins and transgressions, answer their prayers, and deliver them from all that would seek to do them harm. However, his face, his countenance is turned against them that do wickedly. And so the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, over every man. And there is a constant recognition in those that fear the Lord that the Lord is watching over my actions, over me. And so the second question then uh, is turn, what are the fruits of this fear is answered in verses 13 and 14. And quite simply, uh, it is holiness in word and in conduct. Keep thy tongue from evil, thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. And what do we say? Peace here. Not only we have two respects, peace with God, those things which which issue forth in peace with God, exercise yourself in those things, and then also exercise yourself in peace toward men. And then the third question, what are the motivation or benefits of this godly fear is answered in nothing less than life and that abundantly, as we hear about in John 10.10. David asked the question, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? And in this he implies that if we are to have any happiness in this world or in the world to come, we must learn the fear of the Lord. He uh, continues to develop this idea further in verses 18 through 22 where he sets before, before us two paths with a particular focus on those who fear the Lord. What does he describe? Those who fear the Lord, first, this abundant life is characterized by a closeness of fellowship that the saints have with the Lord. The Lord is nigh unto them. The second thing in verse 19, there is a recognition that the righteous will suffer affliction in this life, but though their afflictions are multiplied, so is the goodness and deliverances of the Lord, and they are magnified in the afflictions. Verses 20, verse 20, we see the tender care and concern of the Lord upon all those that are his, and this most particularly seen in the care of God for the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 19, 36, this promise Uh, of not one bone being broken, is applied to Christ with no limitations. Through all that he suffered on Calvary, through all that he suffered in the whole crucifixion process, yet not one bone was broken. And if if in in the heat of that crucifixion, the Lord is able to keep every one of Christ's bones, brethren, can he not keep yours? 
If this tender care was demonstrated unto Christ, then what of those who are united to him by faith? Not one of his children's hairs will fall to the earth, nor one of their bones be broken without God's wise, paternal, and gracious appointment. So and finally, in verses 21 and 22, we have the final state of the wicked and the righteous that are brought into contrast. Evil shall slay the wicked. That is, the wicked shall be slain in their own wickedness and misery with no hope of mitigation. They will be desolate. That is, having all of their guilt resting upon their pate, their head. And then finally, the servants of the Lord shall be redeemed. They shall be delivered from the sting of death and the final judgment so that none of their guilt will fall upon their own heads. Thus ends the reading of Psalm 34.